First Peter chapter 2. If you turn there with me, please. We move into a new section in chapter 2 where um, from our verse this morning all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 25 is going to kind of carry a same theme but kind of dealing with um, three uh, different areas. And the, what we're going to look at today as well as next week and really particularly today is I think something that is very relevant to us who live uh, in the American world and our and our culture, what is happening here, because we are seeing more and more antagonism toward the gospel, toward the church, and toward the people of God. And so um, Peter this morning is going to write, how do we respond to a world who speaks evil against God's people and has a perspective of God's people in some ways that may be accurate because of some people that they have met and seen, but how do we refute that? How do we change what our culture thinks about Christianity, or maybe just someone that we know their perspective of that, and so we're going to look at that um, today. And so I'm I'm going to talk over the next three weeks: the faithful witness that silences the critic. Part one. Next week will be part two, and then we will do uh, part three. So very creative over the next few weeks in our titles. There, all right. Part one, two, and three. If you would look with me, and let's read um, kind of everything. Uh, connected with this so that we can kind of see the whole part of it and then we can kind of understand the piece that we're going to look at today. So we're in verse 11 and then I want to to read through the end of the chapter but we're going to spend our time in 11 and 12. So Peter writes these words. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 15 is kind of the theme verse of this uh, this whole section. Look at it again. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good in general, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing, When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, and here's why, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. Here's how he responded to all this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed, for you were like straying sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. 
So the first thing I want us to see this morning, just kind of get to the heart of the matter is, is what Peter is sharing in verse 11 all the way to verse 25 is that we are called to live a life that is missional. And what I mean by that is not mission trips, but missional in regard to God has, because we have come to know how good he is and this great salvation has come to us, there's a responsibility that we have to live on mission, to take the gospel verbally and by life. So lips and life to take the gospel and to be an example of who he is in the world. This is what we call a missional life. That salvation has come to us, not so that we would sit and just enjoy that as much as we do enjoy that, but we are to live this faith and we are to take the gospel to other people. And so three sections here and a fourth one as the great example that Peter is writing for us and he's writing to these believers who have suffered much for their faith, and he's reminding them, you have suffered a lot for your faith, but I want to remind you, you don't get to relax. Because you come to know him and this great inheritance that is coming to you because of your salvation, there's a responsibility even in the midst of the suffering. We just sang it. And if this life brings suffering, Lord, I will remember what Calvary has brought to me. So we cannot forget in the midst of suffering and struggle for our faith, that there's still a responsibility to live for the glory of Jesus, even in the midst of that. And he gives three specific examples for these believers, and there are things that you and I are going to deal with. Now, here in America, we don't have slavery like some sections of the world do. We used to have that. And so when we kind of get to that section, we're going to kind of talk about how do we live with maybe a boss or a spouse or someone else who treats us unjustly. How do we respond to that? Now, spouses don't look to your other spouse and say, yeah, listen to that. Three weeks from now, you need to hear that. But how do we deal with that? How do we deal with these? And so he deals with three areas. One, he tells them in 11 and 12 that we're going to look at today, we are sojourners and aliens in the world. And the key phrase is, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, how do you respond to that? The next section, he talks about as citizens of the nations of the earth. And so he says, he says, listen, he says, listen, you've got to be subject to every human institution, everyone, whether it is the emperor is supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil or to praise those who do good. So how do we respond to governments? We're going to talk about that next week. How do we respond to the authority that God has instituted that Romans talks about, how do we respond to that, and yet, as Christians, live free. And then, he's going to, in three weeks from now, we're going to talk about, um, as servants of King Jesus, how do we respond to really difficult people who treat us unjustly, and so, and then he'll close out, um, this will be after I get back from Nepal, we will close out looking at the supreme example of Jesus, how did Jesus live in the midst of suffering. Now I want, to, I want you to look with me with a few things here. I want you to go to chapter 1 for a second and then we're going to kind of walk through this. But I, wanna, I just want to remind you and I of the people that Peter is writing to. So look at chapter 1 verse 6 and we're going to look at about 5 verses just real quick in, in, in this because I want us to see um, and be reminded of the people that Peter was writing this letter to. First uh, Peter 1 6 in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus go to chapter 3 verse 14 for a moment 
He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Go a few verses down to 3.17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Go to chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, we'll see that word again in a moment. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now go to 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. All right, now watch this. It's important. We've got to understand context always. He is writing to believers who had been living, most of them, in Italy. Nero had burned Rome. He had blamed the Christians, and he had been persecuting them greatly. These believers have fled. Peter knows them, had a relationship with them. He knows where they've settled. They settled in five areas. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he's writing to them. He's writing over through, all through this letter. You are suffering for your faith. Your faith has cost you something greatly. But I want to remind you that you have this unbelievable role in the world that even in the midst of your suffering, that by your lips and by your life, you are to be a demonstration of what it means to be transformed by Jesus. You are to live a missional life regardless of the suffering that you are facing. And I believe that one of the greatest influences in the world is a life well lived for the gospel. It's what our world is desperately needing and longing to see because it's rare. And a life well lived for the gospel will put to silence the scoffing of unbelievers. And so we're going to talk about that subject today. Our faith is not to be private and hidden. Our faith is to be public. It should be seen by others. And so we want to live this life with a missional mindset. That's what he's calling these believers. It's what he's calling us to do today as well. So let's look at how do we do that? How do we do that in the midst of a world that is antagonistic toward the gospel and toward God's people? How do we live faithfully? How do we live in such a way that silences those who scoff at our faith. And so the second thing this morning and the way to respond to that is is that we live life as a response to what God has done for us in this salvation. We live life as a response to the great love that has come to us. And so he tells them there, look look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you. Beloved, I urge you. This word beloved is used eight times by Peter in First and Second Peter. And he's reminding these believers of this. This word has been under, misunderstood a little bit. <clears throat> this word doesn't mean beloved like brother and sister in a family. This word beloved means this. You are the ones who are loved by God. So he's telling them this. You have fled from your homes. You've had to leave all your stuff. Your life has been chaotic. You are suffering and under persecution. You're starting over. But I want to remind you in the midst of that, you are the beloved of God. God loves you. The world doesn't love you. God loves you. And so Peter says, I love you. So he says, beloved, 
Beloved, those loved by God. And then he says, I urge you. Peter's saying this to them. I love you as well. We're in this thing together. I've suffered persecution. I'm in this with you. So, beloved, let's be reminded we are the loved of God. God loves us. And because of that, let's live our lives differently regardless of what the world says and regardless of what the world does. And so he says, beloved, you are the ones who are loved by God. And I believe that when you and I know this, it motivates us and moves us that even in the midst of suffering to continue to love him because we recognize how great salvation is, right? We know that, man, you can, you know, so many for the last couple thousand years have died for their faith and they have shown that the gospel is worth it. Living for Jesus is worth it. Oh, you can burn this body. You can, you know, people were sawn into. Hebrews 11 talks about. There, you can do a lot of different things. But if we belong to God, then you really can't ultimately touch us. So we fear Him. And we want to live for Him because of the great salvation and the greatness of His glory and this relationship that we have with one another. And so Peter says here, Beloved, you're loved by God and I love you and I urge you. I am urging you this. This word urge means this. It means to plead. It means to beg. It means to encourage someone to do something. So he says, Listen, Beloved, you are loved by God and because of that, I want to urge you. You've got to be someone I want to kind of push you. I want to remind you that you continue to live your faith in credible faithfulness to him because he has been faithful to you. And as Christ followers, I believe this is true for us. We are to kind of have this, we are to have this kind of love for one another. That we want to urge one another to continue in the faith and to continue to be connected with one another. And that we would urge one another to not give up, but to be faithful to continue to walk in our relationship with him before other people. Now, Peter wasn't the only one who wrote this. Paul, this was a big deal to Paul as well. Listen to a few verses here. This is Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he tells those believers, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you would do so more and more. So, so Paul says to the Thessalonians, I urge you to walk. Paul says to the Ephesians, I urge you to walk in light of what has come to you in the salvation. And then he writes to Titus 2.6, he says, Likewise, I urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And so for us, we want to care for one another that if we see something not right, we want to say, man, I love you and I want to urge you. Let's, let's, because we're loved of God, there's a responsibility that we have to walk in obedience to Him. And so the urging that Peter is putting forth for us is this, is that we would walk in faithfulness, not giving in to the passions of the flesh, not giving in to the ways of the world, but that our conduct in our life would be such of high character that even if somebody accuses us of something, that our character and our deeds, how we live, refutes the words that they say. And that's what he's going to tell them because they lived in a world where everything said about Christianity and everything said about Christ was negative. And so he's telling them, listen, there's a way for you to live that will silence everything that they say. So I want to just... Before we move on to the next thing, I just want to remind you and I of this. It's so important. 
We have been given this unbelievable salvation. We've been talking about it. We talked about it last week, the kaleidoscope, just this beautiful thing that God has done. Every turn of the kaleidoscope is this new picture, this new aspect that Peter has been communicating uh, in this letter for us. And so in light of that, we want to live in response to what he has done for us. That there's this great responsibility that gives us a purpose in our lives to be his light and his witness in the world. And so, so first of all, we just see we are called to live and be on mission with him regardless of what happens. In the midst of that, we want to live a life of response, encouraging one another. Let's continue to walk in this relationship with one another. Let's urge one another to continue this because we are the beloved of God. And then there's a third thing this morning that's critical for us. And here's what he says. So he says, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to live in such a way that you don't give in to the passions of your flesh. And so we have got to come to a place where part of, a big part of our identity is I am loved of God. And because I am loved of God, I am different than those who don't know him. I am in relationship with them. And so therefore, I've got to see my life in this kind of idea. And so again, let me just share it. I, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And he gives a new aspect of how you and I need to see our identity. So we need to understand life as a sojourner and an exile. And so let me just give us the definition of these things. This is the second time in First Peter. He does it in one one. He calls them exiles. And in doing so, he's saying, this is how you've got to see yourselves as you deal with the persecution and the antagonism towards your life. And if you and I will embrace this role that Peter sets forth for us today, I think there will be a great difference that others will see in our lives. So let's define sojourner. A sojourner is a Greek word called paraoikos. Oikos means house or home. Para means alongside. And so the word just simply means this. It is someone who's living in a place that's not really their home. It's kind of like a foreigner. When we, when we lived in Germany, when the Verlanders lived in Wales, we were not citizens of those countries. We were living in the country, but we were not citizens, didn't have the citizenship couldn't vote, couldn't do all those things, but we lived alongside of those who were citizens of the world. And so Peter's telling these people, you're the beloved of God, you're in relationship with Him, but your neighbors, the people you go to school with, the people you work with, the people you do commerce with, their kingdom is of this world. They're living for this world, but because you've been redeemed, you get it and understand that your citizenship is in heaven. This world is not our home. And so he calls them, you're a sojourner. You're just somebody who is a foreigner living in a country that's not really your own because your home is in heaven. And this identity for us is critical because it will greatly affect how we make choices in regard to our salvation and our purity and all of these things. And so one, he says, listen, you are a sojourner. And then he calls them exiles for the second time. An exile means this. It is one who is traveling through a country with a brief stay in mind. So you may be somewhere in a foreign country and somebody may say, how long are you going to be here? And you may say, well, I'm going to be here for 
two weeks, or I'm going to be here for a month, I'm going to be this. I'm just here for a brief time. And so Peter is wanting to remind these believers, listen to this, this is absolutely critical. They've lost everything again. They've had to flee. They're living in a place that's not their home. Their home was someplace else. They had to leave it. But also not just that, but their home is not earth. And he's telling them, your citizenship is in heaven. Paul speaks about that in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven where we await a Savior who's going to come. So he says, listen, you've got to have that mindset. You're just somebody who's living here on earth, and this earth is not your home. And you're somebody who's like a soldier, like an exile. You're just kind of passing through this life to your ultimate home. So we are to live and function as people, listen, who knows this, who's come to know this. This world really holds nothing for us at all. We are longing for something greater. And so therefore, our lives are transformed by this salvation and there's choices that we make. This idea of being a sojourner in exile is not anything new. The New Testament writers speak about this. Stephen, when he, he, he gets killed at the end of this message, but he talks about sojourners in Acts 7, verse 6. He said this, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. So he's talking about Egypt. Hebrews 13, 14 says this, For here, here, here on earth, for here we have no lasting city. Listen to it again. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. The one that Jesus said, listen, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And after it's done, I'm going to come back for you and I'm going to bring you to myself. So listen, listen, folks. Boy, I, I just will put myself at the forefront of all this. Our flesh wants to accumulate. Our flesh wants to be pleased with passions. But the Scripture is calling God's people in the midst of a world who think this world is their home. Get, 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 get. We are to live to say, no, I'm just passing through. This is not really my home. I don't need a bunch of stuff because I can't take it where I'm going, so I'm not going to ground my life and all of these things. And so here's what I'm going to do. I have no lasting city here. Nothing lasts here. So I'm going to live in such a way because I know him and seek a city that's going to come. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews described this. And, and uh, that was 13, 14. This is Hebrews eleven thirteen. He's talking about all those that have gone before us and lived passionately. He said this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who sp- speak this way make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, for if they had been thinking of the land, of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And we Christians, those who have followed God, those in the Old Testament before Jesus came, 
followers, we in the New Testament, we have always been called to live this way, that this is not our home. This is not it. We're to live differently. And these words here from Peter, I think, speak to five things. I'm just going to briefly touch on them. They're a perspective that a sojourner in exile has to have, and one is simply this. Our home is somewhere else. It's just somewhere else. Can you not wait to get there? I cannot wait to get there. Hey, a city (laughs) that's like this big diamond where the brilliant light of the glory of God just shines and reflects all through it. We're going to get there. We will walk on streets of gold that are transparent like the diamond is, and the gold that's transparent, and I I can't compute this. Gold is a color. I know that it is, but it's transparent. And this brilliant light that will be there. And we're going to be in this place. And it's going to be unbelievable. And I think that we're not going to, if, if you're worried that we're going to sing for all of eternity, we're not going to sing for all of eternity. Mark Donahoe is not going to stand before us for all of eternity. I love you. But praise God that you're not going to be in front of me. Jesus is. We will behold the Lamb on the throne. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? We will see the scars of King Jesus. And we're heading to a place that is not like this earth. And so therefore, we've got to remember, our home is somewhere else. Secondly, so we don't seek permanence here. We don't live in such a way that we're just so deeply grounded in this earth that it just grips us and we just can't get loose. And so that kind of leads to this third idea is that we've got to get rid of those things in our lives that keep telling us to tire our lives down here. Get rid of them get rid of them fourthly we have to do life here we got to work we got to pay bills we got to take care of our children we got to clothe ourselves all of that kind of stuff do life here do it well but set your mind on the place that you're going set your mind just because if you don't all you'll see is here and we'll get deeply connected to that and fifthly i would just say this that our desires and longings as christ followers have to be contrary to the world. Now, <clears throat> people don't know God, want to take care of their kids. We want to take care of our kids as well. So there's some things we have in common with them, but there's some things that we shouldn't have in common with them. There just should be a distinction of our lives. I don't have a bucket list. You may have a bucket list. I'm not against bucket lists. I don't have a bucket list. But if you hear Christians talk about bucket lists, you know what they're all connected to? stuff here I just wonder if we ought to have a bucket list that says you know for the rest of my life I'm going to go on a mission trip once a year I'm going to give more money away I'm going to spend more time doing this that our bucket list ought to be connected to things that last and there's some things in the world that I would love to see I think there would be really cool places to go and see but I think we've got to be careful that we don't allow our mind to shift to a place where everything about our lives is connected to here So he tells them, beloved, you've got this great salvation. You're beloved of God. You are loved by God. God loves you. Let's live a life responding to this great love that has come to us. And as we do that, we need need to be reminded we're different than those who don't know God. Their home is here. This is all that they're going to get is here. But we know Him. We've been brought into a relationship with Him. So therefore, we have so much more. We're passing through. So let's don't let the world grab us and, and, and get tied down to it. 
But let's live in such a way that our mind is set on where we're going. We're just a sojourner and an exile headed to our ultimate home. So how do you do that? So here's what he says next. He's going to give two really clear things to how we demonstrate that. So he says, listen, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So let's look at that now. The fourth thing is life walking as walking by the Spirit of God. So a decision has to be made for us, for those of us who have a relationship with Him, that as we live in and around people who don't know God, how do we, and they're making their home here, how do we live in such a way that doesn't allow us to look like them, to embrace the things that they embrace? How do we do this? So there's two great things that Peter lists here that tie us down here. One is the love of things in the world. And secondly, is that we would allow our sinful passions inside of us to take over. And so therefore, we have to walk by the Spirit of God. So we can't allow those things to dominate us. If you would, for a second, would you turn to the left and go to the book of Galatians just for a moment? And then we'll get back to 1 Peter. I want to show you a couple things there. Galatians chapter 5 first. So Peter's friend Paul um, wrote these words. This is Galatians chapter 5, and let's look at 16 through 17. So um, <clears throat> this is just critical for us. So, so, so Paul writes these words, Galatians five sixteen. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And so he's, he's telling us, if you walk by the Spirit, here's what will happen, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. It's a battle, a war that's going on. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So here's the deal. Just stay there for a moment. How do we, how do we live differently when inside of us, though we've come to know Him, there's passion to desires of our old nature that wars against our spirit and says, man, live for earth, live for earth, live for earth. Man, satisfy what your mind wants to do, what your eyes want to see, what your flesh wants to feel. How do we fight against those things when the flesh is battling the spirit, the spirit is battling the, the flesh? What do we do? And he says this, you have to walk by the spirit of God, consciously aware that we've been redeemed, that God's presence lives inside of us. And so therefore, we've got to work on our inward life. We've got to work on the inside life. And so there must be a disciplined inside life. This world, listen to me, is to be strange to us, not normal. It's to be strange to us, not normal, because it thinks differently than God does. And what happens for us so often is, is we Christ followers don't protect our heart. That's why Solomon said this in Proverbs 4.23. He says, above all else, he said, make this be the highest priority for you. Above all else, guard your heart, for from your heart flows the issues and matters of life. That word in Hebrew kind of means this. Put something, you ever put something on the top shelf so that your kids can't get it? And you put it up high? That's what he says to do with your heart. Put your heart in a place that's protected and guarded so that you will not 
allow the passions and the desires that are not good for you to thrive. And so a, surger, a sojourner and an exile does not give in. They walk by the Spirit and they do this. They abstain. Now this word abstain means this. It means to hold yourself back from something. Before our new life in Christ, one of the things that was most natural for us is to live according to the flesh, is to please the flesh. But now that we have come to know Him, the fact that the Scripture says here, abstain, communicates to us that this is actually something that we can do. We can do this. This word, passions of the flesh, means strong desires that are either good or bad, but in our context here, it means kind of evil things and things against God. Now, in the church today, particularly here in the West, we, when we hear the word passions of the flesh, we think of one thing, sexual things. And the Scripture would say, no, it's all kinds of different things. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 5, um, Paul said this. He said, now the works of the flesh are evident. He said, yes, there's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, but there are also these things, 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the admonition here is not just sexual things, but it's your mind, it's anger, it's uh, bitterness, it's, it's whatever it may be. He says, listen, those things, those things aren't evident of someone who's walking by the Spirit of God. And the world operates that way. We live in such a world where everybody thinks they get to express their opinion, right? You remember, remember before social media days, and it was a little bit better, and before there was, you know, all this opinionated stuff on the radio, and there's just, you know, we just didn't know all this stuff about one another, and we didn't have this avenue to communicate things. And, and I think our life was much simpler then. I have a longing for that, we're, but we're not going back to that. That's not going back unless we lose electricity. If we don't have electricity anymore, then we can't do those things. And, and so, so I think it's, it's here to stay. And so how do we, in the midst of all of this, of, of posting things and writing things and, and, and living for things that just are really honestly contrary to the Scripture and what God wants us to be? We should just be so distinctly different from everybody else. And the wrestling thing that we have and I'll just speak for myself, is that I've got an old nature that still goes around with Doke Taylor everywhere he goes. And that old nature says, oh, live for you, live for you, live for you, live for you. And to battle it, and you battle it. And the best way to battle it is to surrender and say, God, I don't have the power for this. You do, though. You're in me. So I'm yielding to what your word says right now. And I'm not going to give in to this. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to buy it. And so we are able to find freedom because what's done for us, but we're also able to find freedom because of who lives in us. And it just makes this unbelievable difference in our lives. And so listen to what Peter says here. He says, listen, beloved, I love you. And because of who you are, I want to urge you to abstain, keep away from the passions of the flesh because here's what they do. They are going to, they war against you. It's, it's just a war. It's a war, and, it's, an, and it's, it's, a, it's a battle. And so you've got to draw the line. You've got to draw back. You've got to tie yourself to the cross and remain there. And then he says this, you've got to be aware of the war and what is going on and taking place. And this word war here, which wage war against your soul, it means this. It doesn't mean a battle. 
Sometimes we have a battle. You ever have a battle of temptation one day, whether it's just to say something in a moment or whether it's to look at something that you shouldn't look at, whatever it is, and there's a victory that's there. And so you've won that battle. This word war here means this. It means long military campaign. So here's what Peter is saying. Listen, I urge you, beloved, beloved, I urge you to abstain, keep yourself from the passions of the flesh, which do this. This is all that they're going to do. They're going to wage war against your soul. And their thing is, they've got a, your flesh has a long military campaign to keep you from walking with God. And so therefore, we have got to have a long-minded, far-reaching military campaign to crush the flesh when it wants to rise up and to grab us. And the key to this war is Galatians 5.16. Paul says it, I say, walk by the Spirit. And if you will walk by the Spirit, walk in the truth, surrender to God's purpose and plan for you and His person, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You may remember this, Romans 7 Paul just gives us this unique insight. I love the Apostle Paul because I think he's probably one of the most fascinating people who's ever lived on the planet, fascinating Christians, and may have been one of the, the best Christians ever. And listen to how he describes himself. Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do... What I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but the sin who dwells in me. We're messed up. Basically what he's saying, we are so messed up. And then he says this, so I find it in 21 to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war, he says, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he says this, wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives us the answer. We know the answer. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh wants to serve. He says this, I serve the law of sin. There is a raging war that goes on within us. In our mind, in our heart, in our flesh. 4.50 this morning. My alarm went off, I got up, got ready, stepped outside, and went, oh yeah, it's cold. So I went back in to my closet, back into the house from the garage, from the closet, opened up the closet door, and our dog Rufus had had diarrhea all night and had pooped all over the closet. We're having some dog pooping issues at the Taylor house right now. Um, and so, uh, so this is a little after five this morning. So, um, the good husband that I am, I woke my wife up and, and said, uh, you need to do something. I did not. And I did tell her, I said, hey, Rufus has had some issues, and we had issues yesterday with another dog that's living in our house in another room, 
And so, anyway, it's been fun at our house. If anybody likes, if y'all like cleaning poop, you can come to our house today. We got all kinds of stuff that you can do today. Um, And so here I am. It's early this morning. And we're spraying stuff down on the carpet. We're rubbing it. And and it got so bad that I got out. I had these clothes on. I took my shirt off and put the one I slept in. And I sprayed cologne all over it and just put it over my nose. Because it just, because I'm just down there just scrubbing and just but gagging and wanting to throw up. Pam's the same way. Finally, I said, you just step out. And I'm there, and, and uh, then after that, finally leave, and, you know, I get to my coffee place this morning to kind of walk through the sermon, and, and I just thought about the picture of this, and I thought about of what I just did. You know, sometimes in our life, we just got to get down on our knees, and we just got to, we just got to, we got to deal with the flesh. And it smells and it's contrary to what's normal. And sometimes that's what we got to do. And, that, and that's what soldiers of King Jesus do. They just fight it. And they fight it. And the reason is because there's such a special calling upon our lives. That we would be the kind of men and women that don't look like the world by the way we talk, the way we live, and by the way we see sex. That all of that is contrary to the world. And Jesus is the key to all of that. Now we got to wind things up. Look at verse 12. So he says this, we've got to live differently in regard to the passions of our flesh. And now he says this, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's walk through this and we'll be done. So how do we live inside life, deal with the inside life. And now he says, what do you do with your outside life? How, how does your outside life communicate that you belong to God? So your inside life, the passions that are in the flesh and they long and they're waging war. Okay, how do you deal with that? He's kind of communicated with that. We, we walk by the Spirit. We surrender to what's done. We live in response. And now he says, your outside life is going to say something. And so the first thing is simply this. He says this, keep your conduct. What conduct? What's the conduct? We know what the conduct is. It's the scripture. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So here's the thing. We've got to keep the biblical standard in our lives. That's one of the unique ways that shows that we are different from everyone else. So this word keep means to hold something to a certain standard. So we know the standard for us is who God is as revealed in Scripture and what His Word says. And so we are called to live in such a way, Peter is saying, that it makes it clear that when people say false things about us, that those accusations over time prove to be untrue. And the best way to do that is to know God in the Scripture, to know Him in the Scripture. And we are called to renounce the world, listen to this, for the sake of the world... By keeping the truth of Scripture. Let me say that one more time. We are to renounce the ways of the world for the sake of the world by keeping the truth of Scripture. Here's what I mean by that is. The world needs to see that God can transform people. And so what does the world need? God, the world needs God's people to renounce the ways of the world to the people of the world 
to show this for their sake, that God can transform them, that God loves them, that God has the plans for them. And the best way to do that, again, is embracing the truth of Scripture. So to live life as an outward expression, the first thing is you keep the biblical standard. And then he says this, so keep your conduct, keep meaning holding something to a certain standard. Your conduct means this. It means your whole life, the things you say and the way you live. It's a whole life surrendered to Jesus. We are to live the kind of life that makes our witness of Christ believable to a lost world. So allow your conduct to do so. And then he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This word honorable is very fascinating. In the Greek it means this, it's such a descriptive word that you need about six English words to describe it. And it's a word that means this, it means, it means goodness, striking to the eye, attractive, winsome. It's a word that describes something unbelievable to behold and to see. You know who we saw this in? Jesus. You know why we saw it in Jesus? Moms brought their kids to, so that he would lay his hands on them and pray for them. And then publicans and tax collectors loved hanging out with him. And he was pretty good with hanging out with them because he came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus embodied this goodness. It means to look at someone and to say, boy, that's unique. That's beautiful. That's winsome. That's striking. That's awesome. That is unique. That's what this word honorable means. And so when we reject sin for the purpose of seeing, of allowing sinners to see that our lives are different, it can influence them in regard to salvation and Christianity, the perspective of things. And the more our culture opposes God and His people, I believe the more the gospel distinctiveness of our lives and the church should shine and it comes as we walk in obedience to God. And I believe this, according to what Peter says here, that opposition and persecution sets a backdrop for the display of the glory of God with our lives before others. The more our culture gets dark, the more you and I can stand out if we will walk biblically with Him. And so, it, so we may go, gosh, how terrible it is, but I think there, there's an opportunity for us in the midst of the opposition of our world and the darkness that is ever growing in the American culture for us to have this great, great opportunity to shine better than we ever have shown before because we're yielding to Him. So there's a goodness that's honorable. <clears throat> Throughout history, the church has really been attacked a lot about a lot of different things. And over time, the early church was able to overcome this. Let me just share one thing with you. This is an amazing thing. Um, for the first few centuries after Jesus had ascended, um, the Christians were really, really under a lot of attack. A guy named Eusebius, um, in, his, in his writings, the ecclesiastical history, he wrote this. He said, but the splendor of the Catholic and only one true church, and he's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. This word Catholic means kind of the church at large. He says this, which was always the same, grew in magnitude and power, and reflected its piety and simplicity and freedom, and the modesty and purity of its inspired life and philosophy to every nation of Greeks and barbarians. He says this, Christians went out everywhere and they lived their life before people and it was a simplistic life, it was a righteous life and it had this great influence. He said this, and at the same time that they were living this way, the slanderous accusations which had been brought against the whole church also vanished. 
and there remained our teaching alone, which has prevailed over all, and which is acknowledged to be superior to all in dignity and temperance, and in divine and philosophical doctrines, so that none of them now ventures to affix a base accusation upon our faith or any such slander as our ancient enemies formerly delighted to utter. And what, he, what Eusebius was saying is the church had gotten to a place in about the 4th century where people had for centuries thrown all these accusations at Jesus and his people. And his people and the purity of all of that had been refined in the fire that they couldn't really say anything negative, accurately negative about the way Christians lived. Can you imagine the transformation in our culture, in our county? If us and all our believers here today just said this, I'm not going to live for the things of the earth and I'm not going to live to satisfy and gratify the passions of my flesh. I'm going to live a life in such a way that's so honorable that my neighbor, even though he hates Jesus, can't say anything really truly about me because my life is striking, it's honorable, it's winsome, because I live with integrity in regard to what my heart is. And I love what Peter says there. He says this, so when they say something against you, so when they speak of you as evildoers, not if they're going to, but when they speak of you as evildoers, your conduct will be such that will have a great influence on them. So we've got to close with this, all right? So here's what he closes with. He says, listen, so he says, listen, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, striking, unique, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, you may look at visitation. When I read this weeks and weeks ago, I thought, oh, man, when Jesus comes back and, and, and uh, boy, he's just going to show them he's King Jesus and he's going to do that for sure. But that's not what this meaning is. If you go back to the Old Testament, you can think of times when God visited people. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Three were thrown in there. They're looking in the fire and what do they say? Didn't we throw three guys in there? But we look in the fire, and there's four in there, and we know this. Who had come to be in the fire with them? We believe it's an Old Testament example where Jesus came, and he's in the fire with them. The burning bush, God visited Moses in the burning bush. The boy Samuel had been given up by Hannah's mom to Eli. He's sleeping in the temple, and what happens three times at night? God says, he goes to Eli three times, and finally Eli says, Hey, next time you hear that, you just say, Lord, here I am. Your servant is listening. So this idea of day of visitation, watch this, this is beautiful. We're closing with this. This word day of visitation echoes back to the moments when God came and he visited his people. He oversaw what was going on, and he ministered to them. Here's what Peter is saying. He's telling these believers and he's telling us, live your life in such a way that doesn't grip its thing to like earth is your life. So live here, stay here, accumulate here. He says this, no, don't do that. Don't do that and don't gratify the passions of your flesh because here's the deal. If you will live that way, here's what will happen. 
that on, the, look what he says, he says that they, they, your, your accusers may see your good deeds and they will glorify God on the day of visitation. What does the day of visitation mean? It means this. Let me give a story and we'll close with this. I told it last week. So on a Sunday night in Waco, Texas in 1983, I came to know Jesus as my Savior. My whole junior year, this is what my junior year was like. Do you remember anything called Algebra 2? Anybody remember Algebra 2? Oh, man. God bless you who like math. I, was not, I, just, I just don't have a math brain as much as I tried. Well, to stay eligible to play sports, I needed to make good grades. And so a guy named Todd Still had moved to Waco my junior year. He lived in a community outside of Waco called Meridian. And he had moved. His dad was a banker. He'd moved. I met him one, one night in the summer playing basketball at the high school. And he was going to be my teammate. And I'm thinking, this guy is Looney Tunes. First thing he told me was, man, how much he loved Jesus. And, and I was not walking with Jesus, was not interested in Jesus. I was not interested in anything. Well, come to find out, Todd and I had the same Algebra two class. Todd is a whiz at everything. As a matter of fact, he's got like most of, I think, most of the New Testament memorized. He's like the professor. He's like, the, I think he's like the head guy at uh, Truett Seminary at Baylor. He's like, we knew he would go on to greater things than this person would. And he has. Well, all year long, not before a test, I went to Todd Still's house because I needed tutoring to get help for the test on the next day. So I watched him for a year he'd get on the phone with his girlfriend he talked to them with respect unlike what I didn't do because I was a lost guy and and I just talked to other people in the way that I wanted to talk to he respected his parents I didn't respect my parents so I watched his good deeds match his words and at, on that Sunday night when I went up to my youth minister and said I want what all these people are having they have. I want to know Jesus like that. And I gave my life to Jesus. Do you know the first person I thought of in that moment on my day of visitation, my salvation, was Todd. He's the first person that I sat in that pew I thought of. And the reason is this, and this is what Peter's saying. If you will live your life with such integrity, not grounded in the things of this earth, not grounded in the passions of your flesh, you will have such an influence upon other people I was lost as could be, and Todd was hanging out with me. Just lost as could be. Oh, I would tell you I was a Christian, but I was lost as could be. But my first thought after I said, Jesus, I want you to be inside of me. I, I trusted you. I, be I believe in you. And he rescued me. He rescued me, and he saved me. My first thought was the one who had the greatest influence on me, and it was Todd Steele. And that's what Peter's re referencing there. On the day of visitation, where a slandering Gentile accusing Christians of being whatever they want to accuse, on their day of their salvation, you know what they'll do? They'll glorify God that you lived your life in such a way that refuted everything they said, and it was an influence on them. Isn't that beautiful? So here's what Peter says. This is how you deal with slander and accusation about your faith. Next week he's going to talk about how do we live in a world of governments and laws and all of that. How do we respond to all that? 
So let's pray together. All right.